Someone just said, not someone, Kate just said, where's Pastor Jeremy? <laughs> I know, I put on the microphone this morning and it doesn't fit my ear anymore. I'm Dave. Uh, I was a pastor at one point. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. There's no QR code for me. Um, <laughs> so we're a few weeks uh, into this series in Revelation. If you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Um, is everybody thoroughly confused yet? About what we're doing? Uh, yes. Revelation, where uh, Jesus is revealing to John through an angelic vision, uh, I want you to think about it this way, reality from his perspective. All reality from the perspective of Jesus. Uh, he's revealing his view on things, and he's inviting John uh, to look at his own reality, and if you remember, John is imprisoned at this point on Patmos. He um, will not bow and say Caesar is Lord. And so he's, he's suffering in prison, so Jesus is revealing his view of reality from his perspective, and he's inviting John, look at your own reality, and he's inviting these churches of the day, these seven churches that get these letters, look at your own reality through the eyes of Jesus himself. I want you to see things as I see things. Because I'm the creator of all. I mean, these are all, you know, kind of tags at the beginning of each of these letters. I'm the creator of all. I'm the king of all. I'm the conqueror of sin and death and evil. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I'm Mr. Furnace Feet. I'm Mr. Fiery Eyes. Like, I'm everything. Look at reality, look at your reality, whatever it is that you're going through, look at it through my eyes, not your own. And he says, blessed, at the very beginning of Revelation, blessed are those that hear it, hear this revelation, and they take it to heart. They take it into their hearts. Another way of saying it like this, blessed are those who have the current reality, their current reality, their life reframed entirely to how the Lord sees things. I don't want you to frame your life up based on what you see, based on what you interpret, based on what you feel, but based on what I see, which is tough, right? Because if, if you're like me, and I think I can wager a bet on that, we all frame our reality, you and I, in response to the things that are going on in our world around us. It's really easy to do, for better or for worse. Oftentimes, and I'm going to use in air quotes here, reality, my reality is simply limited to my daily experience and feelings, maybe weekly at best, but oftentimes moment by moment each day. I don't know if, have you ever done this? Someone's asked me before, how's your day? And I will be like, my day stunk, right? The whole day stunk, which oftentimes is not the case. Oftentimes, reality is, is that one five-minute interaction went really poorly with somebody. And because it went poorly with somebody, that bled and, and contaminated everything else I felt about the rest of the day. Has anybody else ever had that experience? Yeah, exactly. 
one slight, one bad interaction, and the whole day stinks, right? We frame our reality oftentimes by a very, very limited scope of experiences, rather than coming up to a much higher view of things. Everybody's had the experience, hopefully. Uh, everyone in here flown? Has anybody in here not been in an airplane? That's awesome. I was going to say, we're going to buy you a ticket today, if not, because uh, you need to have that experience before you die. You know, you get up in an airplane, and, and the topography looks pretty different, right? You realize there's a lot more trees than I realize. There's a lot less people once you get outside the city, once you get a higher view of things. And this is what Jesus is doing with these letters, because the church's, John's experience, the church's experience was tough. They were suffering. Being a Christian in this time in the Roman world was far more challenging of a scenario than what we face today here in the West. There is no debate about that. What you and I face and what these people facing was not the same thing. It looked a lot more like what Robin came up and shared about when she said, let's pray for Iran, who's number eight on the world persecution scale. What they were experiencing is far more like what Iran was experiencing than us. Because here in Nashville, let's just be honest, it doesn't really cost us to be believers. In fact, it can actually be an advantage to be a believer. But I do believe, and I think it's hard for us to miss this, that there is a growing fear culturally, societally, that we are heading in a direction, right, that the cost could be going up to actually identify with the real Jesus, with his real church, not the hijacked Jesus or the hijacked church, the real Jesus and the real church as is shown in Scripture. And so the challenge that was in front of these La the Laodiceans, that's a letter we're going to re read today, the challenge that was in front of them and their tendencies, what they struggled with and their environment may not be so far off from our experiences as we might think. Certainly the things that we're about to get into, that Jesus speaks into, it strikes closely, I'll just say personally, it struck closely at some of the things, uh, willful and unknown compromises that I've made in my own life and that I think our city struggles with. So, with that wonderful teaser, <laughs> uh, Betsy Williams, will you come up and read for us uh, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22? Everybody, this is Betsy Williams. She's going to read for us. You're taller than I am. <laughs> I get that all the time. Yes. Um, Revelation three fourteen through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may, be, you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he is with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let me, let me pray real quick. Lord, prepare our hearts to come to the table. Uh, reveal, Holy Spirit, what you want to reveal. Uh, yeah, make us open uh, to what we are invited to see. Uh, may we be the church that has ears to hear, uh, which is sometimes hard, but we need it in your name. Amen. All right, three things that I hope will prepare us reflecting on this letter coming to the table. Uh, the reminder in this letter the rebuke in this letter, and then I'll say the remedy, all right? The reminder, the rebuke, the remedy. Three R's. It's just so nice and tidy, isn't it? All right, all right. First thing, the reminder. You see this pattern in all of the seven letters to the churches. You also see this pattern in Scripture as well, where Jesus will remind uh, people about who he is and who they are to him. Uh, he will affirm that before he confronts anything. So, the reminder, first and foremost, is this. I, I'm never, uh, maybe not never, but rarely does Jesus confront you without comforting you first. He's going to comfort you with who he is, remind you of who I am, and then who you are to me before I rebuke you. And he does that. Why the Lord does that is so that you're not confused when he says something hard to you about his motivation for doing so. I want to see you sanctified. I want to see change in your life, right? But I'm going to remind you, what is my motivation? So this is a hard word, but it's a, it's a hard word that's coming from a very loving place. I'm not lashing out at you. I'm loving you, right? That's what he says there in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke. So I love you. So <clears throat> Proverbs 27, 6. Uh, I had a friend, a boss one time who I know loved me and fired me said right before he fired me, wounds from a friend can be trusted, right? Hebrews 12 says a father disciplines the children he loves. Though not pleasant at the time, it's a harvest of what? Righteousness and peace for those who have ears to hear and receive and will be trained by that word. So Jesus and what he's saying to the Laodicean church, we have to be reminded of this, he's being a good friend, he's being a good father to not collaborate in their compromises, but confront them. I'm not going to collaborate with you. I'm going to confront it. So remember who I am. I am, what does he say there? I'm the amen, which is basically this. When, when do you say amen? When do you say amen? At the end, right? He's saying this. I'm the final word on all matters. Amen is a conclusion. It's like a judge in a courtroom who's listened to all of the talk. He's listened to the plaintiffs, he's listened to the defendants, he's listened to the witnesses, and now he's saying, this is what's true because I'm the judge, I'm the amen. He says what? I'm the faithful and true witness. The Greek word there for true means the genuine article. It means I'm the real deal. I'm not counterfeit. I'm not, you know, some cheap watch that's getting sold out of a jacket. I'm the real Rolex, right? And then he says, I'm the ruler. The beginning the ruler or the beginning of God's creation, and get this word arche, right? The alpha. I'm the starting point for everything. 
And we all know this, that if you start in the wrong place, you're never going to get to the right destination. So he's saying, I'm the amen, I'm the true thing, I'm the real deal, I'm the archie, I'm the alpha, I'm the beginning of everything. And then he says this, this is also who I am, I'm the one who knows your deeds. Yeesh. You thought Santa Claus knew, right? I wouldn't be worried about Santa Claus. I know about your deeds, which is an interesting thing. He's, he's not saying, I know about your motivations. I mean, he does know about our motivations. He knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. But he's saying, I know your actions, not just your hearts. And he's also saying in this that your actions are a way to look into your heart. I'm going to look at what you're doing. And that's going to tell me where your heart's at. So I'm the amen. I'm the faithful, true witness. I'm the beginning of God's creation. I'm the one who knows your deeds. And I'm the one who loves you enough to discipline you. With all of that, all of who I am, I'm the one who loves you enough to discipline you and to pursue you, to stand at the door and knock, to share a meal, to provide what you truly need, which is refined gold, white clothes, salve for your blindness. You need a place with me on my throne. That's who I am. And I got to remind you, this is who I am and this is what you are to me. That's reality. Remember? Look at reality. Look at things through my eyes. That's reality. Because if you don't see things through that frame or that lens, you're going to misunderstand and misinterpret my message to you. Because what I'm saying to you is coming from a place of truth. I'm speaking the truth to you. Remember? I'm speaking the truth, and I'm doing it in love. I've heard it said in sports before. I remember playing. You know when a coach gets hard on you? Right? And don't get me wrong, coaches can be crazy. When a coach critiques you, um, I've talked to my own sons about this before. I've told them, someone else told me this when I played. Uh, be warned when the coach stops correcting you and stops coaching you because it means you don't matter anything to him anymore. If he's not speaking to you, if he's not correcting you, if he's not. He's doing that because he cares because he sees what's possible, the potential there. It's when he stops talking to you, you should be worried. Jesus is talking, and I'm talking truth to you, and I'm talking to you because I love you. That's the reminder, who I am and who you are to me. That's reality. Now the rebuke. Man, we could get into a lot of this. I got a, I got a boogie. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Anything else? <laughs> so uh, all of these were Jesus reaching for metaphors. I'll just say that. He wasn't, um, like my sons and their friends, they like to roast each other. You know, like, oh yeah, and you're the one with the big head, right? You know, like they say stuff like that. Jesus isn't doing that. He's not like trying to come up with something to get their attention. He's using incredibly targeted language, like surgical metaphors that would have had great meaning to this audience. Because like Pergamum last week, Jeremy preached on, same thing in Laodicea, and probably you can just safely say this, same thing in cities. Because cities are melting pots of ideas, they're melting pots of values, of cultures, of religions. Like in Pergamum, compromise in Laodicea was commonplace. Like, Laodicea was, you could call them serial compromisers, right? They were compromised on many fronts. 
And if you're honest, I mean, when I was preparing to preach this, I'm like, I don't know how, I, I should just get up here and tell you uh, how convicted I've been personally about how much of my life I'm compromising. Things that I know are true, and I just kind of eh, bend it a little bit. But I'm going to invite you, because Jesus is inviting all of us through this letter. We all have areas in our life where we allow what God says is totally unacceptable. It's dangerous. He calls it sin or evil. We call it struggles. Right? We, we kind of soften the edges on things. Right? We are uh, professional domesticators of sin. You've heard me use the example of the people who like bring a Bengal tiger into their house and they live with it until it eats them, <laughs> right? And then you're like, why did you bring that tiger into your house? We all live with tigers. Those people aren't the crazy people. They're just the ones who are doing externally what we're all doing behind closed doors and in our hearts, right? So let's just be honest about that. <clears throat> but unlike the seven previous letters to all these other you know, the six previous letters in Pergamum. In Laodicea, uh, there was no affirmation about the good that he saw in this church. If you remember at the beginning of each of those letters, he's kind of like, you guys are doing awesome, right? You're doing great in this area. You're kind of knocking it out of the park. Nevertheless, I've got a few things i got to talk to you about. He doesn't do that with Laodicea. If you, if you notice that, he just kind of jumps right into what's not going on. This letter, he doesn't affirm really anything. He affirms who he is, right? I'm faithful, I'm true, you know, I'm that, and you, I affirm who you are to me, but I don't affirm anything you're doing. Anything. His confrontation is more broad, it's more total, it's almost completely encompassing. He's saying, Laodicea, your compromise, it's chronic. It's not in just one area of your life, it's, it's kind of broad sweeping. And the first you know, description he uses is lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Hot nor cold water. Now, if you've been in church for a while, even if you haven't, you've probably heard someone talk or reference this passage somehow, right? You know, probably even in like pregame speeches by coaches, right? I need you red hot, you know, or something like that. I've heard it often interpreted that being hot, which means being kind of earnest for the Lord or being zealous for the Lord or not compromising, having like total commitment, that's good, and being cold is actually bad, right? That God, uh, cold, cold is either bad or um, it's at least preferable to lukewarm. Like God would rather you be disinterested in a cold-hearted atheist who believes nothing about him than you be a lukewarm Christian. And I don't think that's actually what is being said here. I think that's missing it. Uh, because to say that God would prefer you to be a disinterested, cold-hearted atheist uh, would cut eventually against other things that Jesus says in Scripture, right, about unbelief. That's not something he prefers. But both are spoken here, hot and cold, as something preferred to lukewarm. Hot and cold are both better, right? Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, Sorry, verse 15, I wish you were either one or the other. I wish, right? The word wish there is actually the word O in the Greek language. It's translated O, like it's necessary. It's necessary that you be one or the other. It's actually a word that's used in a courtroom language for unjust. 
it's unjust if you are not hot or cold. If you aren't one or the other. I wish you were one or the other. So not only do I not think he's saying, I wish you were a cold-hearted atheist, that's better than being a lukewarm Christian. The punch grammatically is, is I want you to be one of these two things, either hot or cold. But the real punch isn't grammatical, it's geographical. Because these metaphors would have had meaning, like regional phrases have meaning, right? Like in Boston, wicked means good. And everywhere else in the universe, wicked <laughs> means something horrible, right? So these, these were regional phrases. Hot and cold water meant something to these people. Because the water in Laodicea was neither, ever. It was carried by an aqueduct for miles. And by the time it got to the people, it was dank, it was tepid, it was known to nauseate. It was the Flint, Michigan, you know, sorry, Flint, of the early church, right? I grew up in a, in a small town, and we had well water. I remember the first time I went to someone's house in the, in the town, like town proper, and I asked my friend, I go, why doesn't your water taste like anything? And he said, because water's not supposed to taste like anything. <laughs> because my water smelled like an egg, right? Egg, and I would add something else there, but it smelled horrible, right? Putrid. That was Laodicea. Laodicea was one of three cities in a valley that was sustained by a single river. It was a sister city to Hierapolis and Colossae, and Laodicea didn't have any access to fresh water. But Hierapolis and Colossae, which were known entities close by cities, were both known for their water. They were like the Voss or the, like the Evian or the Fiji of bottled water, right? Where Laodicea was like Nestle Pure Life, right? They make chocolate, right? What do they do in making water? Hierapolis had hot springs, very therapeutic healing waters. Colossae, cold, refreshing spring water. So when he says you're neither hot nor cold, he's, he's referring to these towns, he's referring to their water, and he's referring to what those water supplies meant to the people of that city. Laodicea, you're neither. You're not hot and healing with your passion for Jesus like a hot tub, right, or a sauna. <laughs> I just can't believe I just skipped very passion for Jesus with a hot tub. <laughs> Anyhow, or refreshing, right, with your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Like Colossae, you're supposed to be a hot spring or you're supposed to be a cool, fresh spring. You're not meant to be lukewarm. That's unjust. I had some friends, we would go to Canada every year, and they did have a sauna, and we'd take this red-hot sauna, right, for like 30 minutes, and then you'd go and jump into the ice-cold lake afterward. Has anybody ever done that? So refreshing, right? You feel alive in a new way. That's what we're supposed to be, that hot, that cold, that refreshing, that alive. You're not like that, Laodicea. You're like dishwater. You're like ditch water. And Jesus' response, it's hard to hear, but he says this, you make me want to puke. Your lack of zeal, it's nauseating to me. You make me want to puke. There's nothing that turns my stomach more than you being lukewarm. Be hot. Be cold. Just don't be this. Because to be lukewarm about me is to not understand who I am 
and what I've done for you and what you are to me. There's no possible way you can understand that and be lukewarm. C.S. Lewis famously said it like this. If you understand the claims of Jesus, you're going to have one of three responses. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is Lord. Lukewarm is not an option. He's either crazy and lying, or he's the Lord of the universe, and he, he deserves my allegiance. But being lukewarm is not an option. So we got to ask the question, clearly Jesus made his case, I don't want you to be lukewarm, i got to hurry. They weren't lukewarm in every area of their life, right? He says you're lukewarm. Sorry, I looked over at Christopher for that. I'm keeping going. We have to ask this question, how had they gotten there? How had they become lukewarm? Because remember, he's not writing to non-Christians. He's writing to the church. How had they gotten lukewarm? Well, I I think we see it in the second part of the rebuke, where he says that you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind right? You're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, naked, and you're blind. Why does he bring up those three words, right? Because when he uses those three words, what he's actually getting at, we'll see here in a second, is he's, he's putting his finger on a place in their life where they are struggling with divided affections and priorities, misplaced love. Another way to say it is this, they were lukewarm towards Jesus because they were red hot in another area of their life. Here it is. Verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. I do not need anything because of my wealth. But you do not realize, from my seat, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You say, I imagine them talking in the mirror to themselves right? Talking to myself like, yeah, man, I don't need anything. I'm rich. What's he doing? He's getting at the internal monologue of the church. And what is the church of Laodicean saying? I need nothing. I don't need anything. And Jesus is saying, yes, you do. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you're lukewarm towards me. You're not You're not hot and you're not cold because you're hot and cold over on this side and it's hot and cold in the area of needing nothing. Jesus is putting his finger on where they are zealous and the goal of their life, which is to need nothing. And I don't know about you, no one ever told me that in my hometown. But I can tell you, it's for sure What I've grown up believing is the goal of life. In fact, believing it's what God wants from me. God wants me to get to some place where I don't need anything, even from him. Look at me. I've arrived. I'm on top. In fact, I hate being needy. Don't you hate being needy? I don't want to be a needy person. I want to be a need meter, not a needer. Say need meter three times fast. But that was what Laodicea was. They didn't have any needs. They were a finance center, second only to Rome, second wealthiest city in the world at the time. They suffered a city-leveling earthquake, right? 
And when the earthquake happened, they, every other city that had that happen to them had to appeal to Rome for funds. Laodicea said, we got it. We just paid for our own renovation. We'll rebuild the city out of our own banks. Like, Laodicea is strong, right? <laughs> I mean, Nashville loves that sort of stuff, right? Like, we'll rebuild our own city, and we'll send volunteers to your city, but we got this. They were a clothing and textile. So when he says, you know, you're wealthy, they were wealthy, right? You're rich. You're naked. Well, they were, they were a clothing and textile exporter. They had these special sheep there that I guess made like glossy wool, right? I don't know. But they were a fashion capital and exporter, and they also were a medical center, a huge hospital base, known particularly for curing eye ailments. So for Jesus to say, you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind, he wasn't just throwing together a string of, of words like, I hope this lands. <laughs> he was saying, I know that you appear in your little bubble of self-sufficiency to think that you're solid, but you're not. From my seat, which is spiritual reality, you're quite the opposite. You're one-dimensional. You're one health diagnosis away one bad market quarter away, one fashion change or flock loss away from being shown to be utterly bankrupt. Self-sufficiency was the spiritual quest of the day for the Laodiceans. And friends, I think it's ours too. It's the spiritual existential quest of our day. It's the Western way of life. The goal of life is to get to a place of needing nothing which the Bible calls pride. And that is 1,000%. It's more than 1,000%. It's infinite percent different than the reality of the life that we were created to have with God. That's never been his goal for you and me. In fact, that's his rebuke. Your commitment to needing nothing, I am rebuking you of that. You need me. And Jesus is now offering a second crack, a new way back to a place of actually needing him through his life and his death and resurrection because he was the one who needed nothing but brought everything to the table so that those of us who were deceived by sin and self could receive what we don't even realize that we need but relentlessly are trying to accomplish every day through our own effort. How many times do I say this sentence? If I just had a little more money. If I just looked a little better. I mean, I'm working on it, y'all. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Thank you. No, but seriously, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little more beauty, if I just had a little more you know, self-healing ability, if I could just navigate my physical and mental life better. The Laodiceans had it all. And Jesus comes to the door and says, all of those things they're not as sturdy as you think they are. In fact, from my view, they're counterfeits of what you truly need. So what do we need? Now I've got to really book. That's the rebuke. He reminds us, the rebukes us, and then he gives us the remedy, which is two things, repent and receive. Repent, right? That's what he says. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest, be zealous, and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, Right? Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Repent and then receive. So 
The first thing we do, and I'll, I'll fence the table while I do this. When you come here, the first thing we do coming here is we repent, right? We, we repent of the fact that our success, our like zealous, unflagging quest for self-sufficiency, I need to repent of that, right? My success, my accomplishments, my desire for those things, those things probably are the very thing preventing my love of the Lord from growing and deepening because I am, I'm lukewarm towards the Lord because I'm red hot in some other area of my life. My love of money, my love of beauty, my love of my commitment to my own self-healing, it's standing in the way of something. So I have to repent. That's what we do when Paul says, examine your hearts as you come to the table. And then I have to receive, right? He calls them to repentance, and then what does he tell them he's doing? I'm standing at the door of your heart's house knocking because I want to come in and I want to share a meal and I actually want to do something for you, right? I want to, uh, I want to counsel you. This is what we're going to talk about over the meal. To buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich, so that you can actually have white clothes to wear and you can cover your shameful nakedness and stab to put on your eyes so you can see. That's what we're going to talk about during our meal. That's what you're going to experience from me. I want to give these things to you. Open the door to me. Stop keeping Jesus on the outside of your life. Like, isn't this astounding? Jesus just said, you make me want to puke, and I still want to sit down and eat with you. Like, when people nauseate me, I don't try to get on their calendar. (laughs) Right? I avoid them. How great is the love of God that when I was nauseous in my self-sufficiency, he said, I'm coming after you, Dave. And when he steps in, he doesn't dine and dash, but he says, I'm here to deliver you from your idols. So come get those things that you're trying to get from your money and your beauty and your accomplishment and through your self-healing, come get them from me because I can give you what you most deeply need. Wake up. Wake up. So we come to the communion table. Here we come. The God of the universe is knocking on your door this morning. He's knocking on it. He's saying, come have your reality reset at this table. That's why he said, do it often, right? In remembrance of me, because he knows I'm going to get out of whack. Come, know how much you need me, and come watch me provide for you, right? The God of the universe, he chose you. He's knocking on your door. He's he's going so far as to saying, hey, after we leave this meal, I'm going to invite you up to the throne. I'm taking you up to the box seat, right? So when we come to this meal, you come to repent, to remember, and to proclaim the truth of what Jesus did in your great need. And the invitation is this. Are we so full of, of commit, being committed to needing nothing that we come to this table not hungry for the grace that we need here? If so, if that's you this morning, repent of that. Repent of your gluttony of self-sufficiency. I'll be up here doing that. So you can join me. Puke it out so that your stomach can hunger for what truly satisfies. So if you're in Christ, repent. Examine your hearts. Examine where you're lukewarm. Y'all, band, come on up. Come to the table.
If you're not in Christ, if you're still trying to do your life without needing Jesus and saying, I'm going to do life on my own terms, I'm not sure I want to open that door. He's saying, open the door before you come to this table because this meal is proclaiming your need of him. So if you don't believe you need him right now for salvation, don't come. He says you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself when you do that. Come to him first and then open the door and then come to the table. So the band's going to play, create an opportunity for us to worship. When you're ready, come forward. Uh, There'll be people here to serve you. Uh, Put out your hands when you're ready. There is a gluten-free option on this end. So just tell somebody you need that, right? There's prayer. If you need prayer here, cross your arms. Someone would be happy to pray for you. There's also going to be people back in the prayer corner. I think Abby Gant and Suzanne Williams will be back there ready to pray with people. So if you want prayer here or prayer there, please take advantage of that. Um, So here are the words from Paul. Further, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you on the the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he took it, he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. I'm for you. <laughs> I'm for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we come to the table. Forgive us, uh, Father. I live so many of my days trying to not need you. When you're just saying, son, you need me so badly, so much more than you know. Uh, Break our hearts open. Uh, Help us lay down the things we need to lay down at this table to receive what you want to put in our hands. Real wealth, real sight, real clothing, robes of righteousness, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven by you for us. May we cash those checks today at this table. Uh, Show us your beauty in your name.